message for this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We are continuing in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. This is really the high water mark of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the end of it, but it's in many ways the climax, in many ways the most fascinating and difficult passage in this um, book. And it challenged me in ways that I have been rarely challenged, honestly, in prepping this message. It's entirely appropriate for Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, as you will see in just a few moments. And so I, my prayer is that the Lord would do a unique work in all of us this morning and really, and really challenge you if you're distracted, if you feel adrift this morning. May the, may the Lord superintend a miraculous work to reorient you and help you focus and experience real transformation when we leave. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Matthew 5, specifically verses 38 through 48. Matthew 5, 38 through 48. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this is such an important yet, I mean, preeminently difficult passage. And so we, we plead with you for help. And again, as I was, I was just saying, Lord, would you, would you reorient us that we might really hear this passage, that we might be vulnerable before it, asking you to interrogate our hearts, and may the Spirit work in such great power, Lord, that we are changed people when we leave here. Lord, we're great inner lawyers, and so I pray that we would resist the temptation to self-justify and let you work in power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What if we heard this passage seven hours ago in Ukraine, cuddled with members of our church family for a Sunday morning service in the remnants of a local grocery store because the building we used to meet in has been reduced to a heap of rubble. And what if the gathering is primarily women and children because many of the men are away fighting? 
this passage would hit a bit differently, wouldn't it? I'm not discounting the fact that some of us here this morning have certainly been victimized in grievous and very evil ways. However, more than a few of us might not truly feel the weight of this passage, especially if our main conviction going forward is that we need to stop blowing leaves into our neighbor's yard because their dog loses his mind every night around 2 a.m. Safety and comfort for all of their blessings, for all of their benefits, can tranquilize the force of what Jesus is saying here. But for those of us who really know evil or injustice, exhortations to turn your cheek and to love your enemies, they are jarring, maybe even offensive. You could understand a Ukrainian widow slipping out the back door, faced with tears for this kind of sermon. Ditto someone who's experienced something like sexual assault. I had to grapple with this text big time 10 years ago when my dad was killed, especially as I sat in a courtroom watching his legal team make their case for a really lenient sentence. So where's the beauty and the goodness in what Jesus is saying here? That's what I want to know. How do these very challenging exhortations help us flourish in the world, which is, we've been saying throughout this series, is one of the primary occasions for the Sermon on the Mount. How do we reconcile this passage with God's concern for justice? Two intentionally provocative reflections this morning as we navigate these verses. Number one, our enemies, our neighbors too. And then secondly, we're all enemies. Our, neighbors are, our enemies are neighbors too, and then secondly, we are all enemies. Enemies. Let's start, let's just jump right into it with that first reflection. Our enemies are neighbors too. In verse 38 and then again in verse 43, we encounter the final, you have heard, but I say, cadences contained in the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, you have heard, that always refers back to the Torah, Back to the law, although with an asterisk big time in verse 43 that we'll address shortly. Accordingly, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 38, is a provision found back in the law in several places. Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, and Deuteronomy chapter 19. And this provision in the law was intended to promote justice in cases where one party had been harmed in some way by another party. As we discussed last week, and we've discussed this multiple times, the heart of the law 
the heart of the law had to do was showing the Israelites what it looks like to love God with their heart and soul and strength and what it looks like to love their neighbor. It's the heart of the law. So how do you love neighbors who have been harmed? By taking actions intended to compensate them, or we might say, give them their due as human beings created in the image of God, in proportion to the harm that they've endured. This eye-for-an-eye standard, it appears to have been employed literally in circumstances involving murder, so that would be a life for a life. But, since gouging out somebody's eye is a consequence for gouging out your eye wouldn't do that much for you aside from maybe granting you this, this twisted sense of satisfaction, financial restitution was very often used as a replacement, especially by Jesus' death. And the amounts were determined according to the severity of the crime. At this point, you say, Chipper, stop using the passive voice and tell us who was making these sorts of judicial determinations. Answer, civil authorities, such as the judges mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 18. The idea was that civil authorities would hopefully be objective, hopefully, they would hopefully be objective in cases involving harm, And the law guided them in the direction of true justice by calling for very precise legal determinations that fit the scope of the harm, no more, no less. Conversely, neighbors were not supposed to take matters into their own hands, lest they end up pursuing vengeance instead of justice a very significant temptation given the sinful human condition. Justice has to do with making somebody whole. Vengeance has more to do with with punishing someone or getting back at them, often in a way that leaves them worse off than you ever were. And boy, do people who wrestle with pride and excessive self-interest, that would be all of us, by the way, Boy, do we have this way of convincing ourselves that we're pursuing justice when we're actually pursuing vengeance. And even worse, sometimes we are well aware of our true desires and we intentionally find ways to disguise them as noble, even praiseworthy pursuits of justice. I'm a baseball guy, many of you know this, I've talked about it before, but truthfully, I don't want to get into this too much this morning, there are a lot of issues these days with Major League Baseball, one of them being baseball's sacred, unwritten rules. Okay, for example, if you're not familiar with the unwritten rules of Major League Baseball, if a guy from the opposing team's dugout sort of, you know, looks at you funny, The unwritten rules declare that your pitcher can now get back at that person by throwing a 100-mile-per-hour fastball at his head 
from the dugout, the dude from the dugout, when he comes up to bat. So he looked at your funny, you know, your, your guy funny. Now, now your pitcher can go out and make amends by throwing a, a laser beam fastball at his cranium. In fact, not only does he have the right to do this, he's, he's kind of obligated to do this, to stand up for his guys. This is what happens when we take matters of justice into our own hands with no accountability, according to unwritten rules or whatever, it turns into vengeance. It goes totally off the rails. He looked at you funny, and now you believe you have just cause to inflict grave bodily harm. Unaccountable, blank check pursuits of justice lead to vengeance, and ironically, injustice. Or to put this in in yet another rather striking way, nice little pun there, you end up failing to love the neighbor who did the evil thing by meeting out a consequence that does not fit the crime. Now you might be able to guess what was happening in Jesus' day, occasioning his But I say to you, clarification intended to help his disciples recover the heart of the law. Religious leaders had apparently kind of cropped out the part about civil authorities arbitrating the standard of justice, thereby unleashing all sorts of opportunities for personal vendettas and vengeance. It's hard to say how intentional this was, But the end result is that a tool intended for justice was basically weaponized. More on this in a bit. In verse 43, we have this provision found in Leviticus chapter 19, albeit a very distorted provision. Here's what Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 actually says. It actually says this, you shall not take vengeance, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what it actually says. But that provision had morphed over time. It became, as Jesus summarizes it here, it became, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Distortion number one, de-intensification. The law says, love your neighbor as yourself, but that as yourself part has gone missing in action. Distortion number two, what I'm calling subtraction through addition. By Jesus' day, religious leaders had apparently concluded, well, neighbors here in the law means fellow Israelite. Surely that's what we're talking about. Which therefore delineates the scope of this command. There's nothing here about loving non-Israelites, so let's go ahead and remove them from consideration. In fact, let's take that a step further and say that we can hate those people who, as fate would have it, happen to be our natural enemies. We'll add that to the law because surely that's what the law implies. That was the calculus. 
Thus the occasion for Jesus to help his disciples understand the heart of this law too. If you know the parable that Jesus very famously tells in Luke chapter 10 concerning the Good Samaritan, that story should be wafting through your mind right now. But the religious leaders honestly shouldn't have needed that parable to rightly answer the who is my neighbor question. They already had plenty of material about this and the law. More on that later. Notice any patterns concerning human interactions with God's moral standards? Especially when you consider all of the Matthew chapter 5 cadences and concerts with each other. Not only do we regularly fail to keep these standards, we regularly, cough, cough, reinterpret these standards in such a way that they begin to miraculously support our own sinful desires. Or perhaps we reinterpret these standards in such a way that they support the corporate interests of our spiritual community or our political tribe or even our nation. License to hate your enemies is awfully convenient when, say, you're looking to gain power over people, in the worst cases by eradicating people figuratively through cancellation or literally through violence. Here's how you can attempt to diagnose this reinterpretation disease, which can be very difficult to detect given that it generally conforms to celebrated cultural norms and usually affects a lot of other people in your tribe, which obscures the presence and the severity of the disease. If God's moral standards don't challenge you anywhere, if they don't make you uncomfortable in some way, you might have the disease. If your interpretations of God's standards are out of step, with the way that others throughout church history have consistently interpreted them, you might have the disease. If your interpretations of God's standards are out of step with the way that Jesus' followers and other cultures and other parts of the world interpret them, you might have the disease. These are signs that our interpretations have been captured by personal desires or political ambitions, etc., etc. These are signs that our interpretations are grounded in selfishness or pragmatism rather than holy desires to love God and our neighbor. So Jesus, aware of the human condition, helps us recapture the heart of of God's standards. Verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, and and honestly, this is one of the most shocking and amazing and difficult parts of the Christian worldview. Your enemies are your neighbors too. Enemies meaning 
people who slap you, sue you, take your tunic, cause you financial harm, treat you with prejudice, persecute you, live in a country that's hostile to your country, support the political candidate you oppose and believe to be dangerous, cut you off in traffic, look at you funny from the dugout, and on and on and on we could go here. These people are our neighbors, too. And so we love them, returning to Jesus' words here in verse 44, and we even pray for them. Thus, demonstrating with our actions our relationship with God as his sons and daughters. Verse 45. Tax collectors and Gentiles, verses 46 and 47, basically meaning people who don't know God. Tax collectors and Gentiles, they, they love their bros. You know, they, they love people who share common interests, maybe a common ethnic background, whatever. And there's nothing that's particularly fascinating about this kind of love since it's not, it's not all that costly and it might even benefit you personally. I mean, who doesn't enjoy a reliable golf buddy or, or maybe a shopping friend? But God-fears love their neighbors, which includes both their friends and their enemies including people who slap you. On one of my news apps, I, I recently saw the headline, uh, TV debut of Power Slap League delayed. That was a headline. And I don't know about you, the news for me wasn't the TV delay of this league. It was the very existence of said league, which come to find out is actually the second such league, meaning now we have rival slapping leagues And they work something like this. Two people, they, they come and then they stand facing each other. And then the first one just like, bam, as hard as they can. And then if the other person is still standing after the inaugural slap, they get a chance, bam, right? And then if, if you're still standing after that, now you can slap them back, right? They kind of turn the other cheek and then bam. And then it just keeps going until somebody falls down. But that is not the kind of cheek-turning that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about continuing to love your neighbor, even if that neighbor has caused you harm. He's talking about, believe it or not, willingness, for example, to sacrificially give someone your own clothing if they need it, even if they've stolen clothing from you in the past. So we disregard justice? We pretend like nothing happened? Christians are soft on crime? I mean, however you want to say it. No. And here's where we get into the meat of what Jesus is saying here. It, it means we pursue justice and we love. Both pursuits informing one another along the way. It means that we turn up both the justice speaker, and the love speaker to an 11. This justice and love partnership raises 
I mean a lot of questions. Certainly more questions than we can possibly tackle today. So I'll give you two principles and an illustration for your consideration. And then you're just going to have to keep thinking about this on your own, hopefully in conversation with others in your church family. Principle number one, God fears assume. God fearers assume that next steps in situations involving harm, injustice, etc., on the part of their enemies will be complex and layered, not simplistic or black and white. Pursuing justice and isolation or pursuing love and isolation is relatively easy and straightforward. Plenty of people therefore emphasize one or the other, they're in team justice or they're in, they're in team love. But my goodness, pursuing love and justice together is very difficult, requiring lots of counsel, careful thinking, and prayer, etc. I would therefore argue that a hallmark of spiritual immaturity is couching complex situations as obviously this or that. It might gain you a lot of followers on Twitter, but I don't think it's particularly godly. Principle number two. God fears yearn for accountability as they pursue justice in love. Therefore, seeing the value of establishing good, wise governments, maybe solid institutions like churches, and then they entrust themselves to the parameters of these accountability structures. Taking matters into your own hands, going rogue, whatever, and might get you quick results, but very often these are not wise or good results. And if you find yourself pursuing vengeance, please know that it rots your soul and it makes you miserable. It does not bring the closure or the satisfaction you think it will bring. Instead, it, it traps you in this dungeon of bitterness and it lends itself to never-ending cycles of, of harm and even violence. As my family wrestled with this passage and these principles, we decided that it looked like telling the guy who killed my dad, listen, there are a lot of wise reasons why the government intends to send you to jail. And so we think you should go there. But we also forgive you completely, dropping any right to hold grudges or to get back at you. We're not going to try to sue your family into oblivion in civil court. In fact, if your dad found himself in line in front of me at CVS, and realize that he had forgotten his wallet, our intention would be to pay for his Tylenol and his toothbrushes. <laughs> Didn't say it exactly that way, but you get the point. Did we handle all of this perfectly? I really doubt it. But there's an example of our attempt to navigate such waters, and of course, different circumstances like Maybe the abuse situation I mentioned earlier, different circumstances will call for different kinds of actions. 
So in line with the same question we asked last week, how do we become the kind of people who love our enemies? I mean, yes, it has to do with walking with Jesus and fearing God, as we've discussed. It always has to do with that. But we need to go a bit deeper, which leads us to our second reflection. We're all enemies. We're all enemies. Well, at least all of us were enemies. And here I'm primarily thinking vertically. Here's Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, that is of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And here's the Apostle Paul once again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, using very similar language. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, that is, toward God, doing evil deeds, he, that is Jesus the Son, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So do you see that there's no neutral ground here? There's no Switzerland in God's spiritual economy. Apart from Christ, all of us, Romans 5, Colossians 1, are natural enemies of God, opposing him with our actions, with our thoughts, everything. This is profoundly uncomfortable, but it's the produce of pridefully doing things our way and putting ourselves in the God's seat instead of entrusting ourselves to God. When you stake out a rival kingdom for yourself, instead of honoring and enjoying the true king, you become an enemy of the state. It doesn't matter how affable your personality might be. You can't tell the king, listen, I'm not really against you. It's just that my territory will no longer be part of your domain. It doesn't work like that. And as God's enemies, we're all estranged. We're alienated. Our sin breaks the fellowship that we are meant to have with God. But Jesus, even as he was seated on a mountain, preaching to his disciples, turns out that he was on his way to the cross, and he was going there to die and rise again from the dead, bridging the gap between us and God that we might be reconciled. We, being those who surrender our lives to Jesus in repentance and put our hope in the true King. We have in Jesus a king, the king, who willingly gave up his life for sinful people hostile to God that they might have life eternal in the king's kingdom. No longer enemies, but friends. You can see that language in John chapter 15. The love and the grace here is just off the charts. I would give you an illustration, but honestly, when it comes to this sort of thing, the best illustrations are so far short of reality that let me just quote Romans 5 again and let that do the work. This is Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For a while, we were still weak at the right time Christ died 
for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person uh, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, and by extension, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. That is love right there. And that's the love and grace we'll need to know about, not just intellectually, but that's the love and grace we're going to need to experience radically if we are going to have a chance in the world at substituting forgiveness for for retaliation and loving our enemies. We will show love and grace to our enemies only when we realize that we were enemies too, before we received the love and grace personified in Jesus. The Jesus who, by the way, cares so much about justice that he gave up his life to account for our sin rather than, say, just asking the Father to, to brush our side of sin as if it wasn't a very big deal. So if you are passionate about pursuing love without forsaking justice, you have a friend in Jesus. If you're trying to discern how you might bring yourself to the feet of Jesus. Maybe start by acknowledging that the very fact you're sitting here this morning is an extravagant grace from God. That the fact that you woke up and that you ate breakfast and that you found some way to get into this building is all God. See, for example, the second part of verse 45. God's grace is already present in your life to some degree, whether you realize it or not, causing it to rain on both the just and the unjust. If you don't know Christ, today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. You don't got to wait for tomorrow. Today is the day Today is the day for enemies of God to become his friends. And aside from the benefit of life eternal in God's kingdom, as as wonderful as that benefit is, that's the best benefit, but aside from that, the love and the grace you experience in Christ will begin to spill over into the everyday rhythms of life. And instead of continuing to hold grudges, and, and instead of continuing to live vindictively, even when offended by the the slightest indiscretions, you will grow in your eagerness to show generosity to your enemies and even love them. Another way to, to put this is that you will be generous to people who don't deserve it because you don't deserve the generosity you've received from God. Which actually might help explain the the kind of enigmatic presence of verse 42 in Matthew chapter 5 concerning Jesus' exhortation for us to give to people who beg or ask to borrow money. Uh, Sure, they might not deserve it, but what do you deserve? Love your neighbor. We don't have time to get into this now in detail, but I don't think it means you need to give somebody $10 every time they ask you for $10. Plenty of wisdom and nuance factor into this, but you get the broad idea here. And herein lies, perhaps counterintuitively, 
what we might call a secret stash of joy. Hardened, vengeful bitterness. It looks so cool in movies, but it is a gigantic bummer in real life. It looks cool in the lives of social media influencers who seem to be peddling it these days like it's fun and and glamorous. It is not. Those of us who are already in Christ, who really have brought ourselves to the feet of Jesus. Here's a question for you this morning. How often do we remind ourselves of our need for Christ? How often do we remind ourselves of what we were before him? Ongoing repentance is a perfect occasion for this which is one of the reasons that I get a little bit testy whenever I detect currents in in popular Christianity that that minimize the seriousness of our sin and speak of God loving us mainly because of our lovability rather than on account of His grace. Do that, and you will minimize your understanding of your own need for Christ. And when your need for Christ feels minor, Even the minor offenses of others will always feel major, and they will pull you into pettiness and vindictiveness and stone-hearted refusals to forgive and straight-up misery. But when we maximize our understanding of our need for Christ, such as through regular confession and repentance of sin, and I'm talking about in the liturgies of our weeks, not just on Sunday morning. When we do that, then we can start to live generously. And then we can forgive. And not just can, not just can here's, here's what's wild. We end up actually wanting to. We'll actually want to leave vengeance in the Lord's hands and then love without restraint for the glory of God and the good of others and the blessing of our own souls. And then we'll begin to live righteously in conformity to the kind of perfection that Jesus is talking about at the end there in verse 48 accumulative righteousness that we've been unpacking ever since we started these cadences back in verse 21. Then we will begin to live according to these high standards for the glory of God, for the love of others, and again, for the benefit and blessing of our own souls. Amen.